Acts 20, verse 17 through 24. And it reads this, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course." and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I want to preach to you this morning on these verses under the title, Finishing the Race. Finishing the Race. Please take a seat and let's pray as we ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for this time that we can dive into this passage. We ask, God, that you would give us help as we study your word, that you would help me as I preach it, that I would preach your word, not my own ideas, that you would give us open ears, open eyes, open hearts, open minds to understand, to hear, and to receive your word, that you would shape us according to the likeness of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Well, every fall, it gets chilly, and uh, when it gets cool, I take a trip to wherever I can find some firewood. I get on Facebook Marketplace, and I find some, somebody that's willing to sell some cheap, cheap wood, ready to burn. So last week, I did just that. I, uh, my son and I, Hedden had, had and I, loaded up my van, uh, the back of my van with some firewood, we brought it home, we unloaded the firewood onto my fire rack in my backyard. However, my fire pit that I use in my backyard is only 16 inches wide. And most of the time when I get wood, the wood is somewhere between 18 to 24 inches long. So what that means is I've got to cut it down. So until about 10 p.m., Had and I were out there uh, with my chainsaw cutting through logs. Now when we were finished and we loaded all of the logs onto the rack, there was left uh, a pile of, of uh, sawdust. And so the next day, after my dog had rolled through the sawdust a number of times and brought sawdust all through the house, my wife told me, please go sweep up the sawdust. So I went, went outside, swept it up, and I ended up with two buckets full of sawdust. And I about threw it out, and I thought, well, wait a second, maybe there's some value to this. So I googled, what is the value of sawdust? What can I do with sawdust? Came up with ten different 
things that I can do with sawdust. One of those things is I can make fire starters. So that's my plan for maybe later today. But now here's, here's the thing is sawdust is not the point of cutting through logs. Sawdust is what you would call a byproduct. The product are the logs that have been sawn in half. The byproduct is all of the sawdust on the ground, meaning nobody's aim in driving 30 minutes, finding wood, loading up their van with wood, unloading the wood into their backyard, nobody's doing that for the purpose of making sawdust, even though sawdust sawdust has some, some value. But no, sawdust is a byproduct. Byproduct is defined in this way. A byproduct is a secondary result, unintended but inevitably produced in doing something else. Now, a lot of people seek fulfillment as if fulfillment was the main goal and the main product of life. But the problem is this, is that fulfillment is a byproduct of doing something else. So if you are seeking fulfillment in your life, in your job, in your purpose, in your destiny, in your career, in your neighborhood, in your family, if you are seeking fulfillment as the main goal, you are like somebody going out and getting a whole bunch of wood and then just kind of chipping away at it with your fingernail hoping to produce some some sawdust, you will never find fulfillment. Focusing on fulfillment. You've got to focus on something else. Because fulfillment is a byproduct. So what is it that we're focusing on? Well, I'm going to tell you right up front. The goal of life is to glorify God. Fulfillment is the byproduct of going after that goal. Are you with me? You don't achieve it through focusing on it. You focus on something else and something bigger and something better. Now, let me just use Paul as an example. What was Paul's purpose in life? If you knew the Apostle Paul who wrote this, you might know him for the quality tense that he makes. You don't know him yet as the apostle who wrote half the New Testament. You know him as the dude that you bought a tent from. What was Paul's purpose? Some people might say Paul's purpose was to be a CEO in the tent industry. Building quality tents. And by the way, verse 34 tells us something about his tents. Through his own tents that he builds and sells, in verse 34 we learn that he not only supported himself, but he supported his whole crew who was with him. Meaning this dude made some mad quality tents. He knew how to make a dollar off his tents to the point where he could actually support multiple people with all of his profits. He was good at business. The scholar, scholars tell us that while he was in Ephesus for two and a half years, his, uh, his schedule mostly, uh, most likely looked like 
working on tents from 6 to 11, from sun up until about 11 o'clock when they would kind of take their what we might call a siesta. And then from 11 to about 3 or so, it was lunch and just kind of break during the heat of the day. And that's when Paul is gathering the church together every day in the hall of Tyrannus to teach them. And then at about three or four, they would all disperse, they'd go back to their jobs, and Paul would work on tents until about sundown. Which means that Paul was a hard worker, and Paul had a very successful business. But what was Paul's purpose? Was Paul's purpose to do well with his business? Was his purpose to build wealth for himself? You see, today in our culture, we often mystify purpose. We think of purpose as sort of this secret calling or a secret destiny that you have to go and find. And so for that reason, people make mad profit off of you trying to find your purpose. People write entire books on you trying to find how to, how to find your purpose. TED Talks and YouTube videos on discovering your destiny. There are entire churches that are actually shaped around this idea of you finding purpose. And usually that is found in maybe some sort of job that's out there, some sort of career, some sort of work aspiration, or some sort of service. Week after week, people come to these things looking for their purpose. Hearing the directive, go find and discover your purpose. But it never works. Do you know how I know? It's because week after week after week, folks leave with the directive, go find your purpose. And they've been hearing that for five years. At what point, church, do we just find it? At what point do we discover our destiny? I'm here to tell you what it is, not tell you to go find it. So how, how did Paul introduce himself? Did Paul introduce himself in this way? Did he say, I, Paul, owner and operator of Pauline Tents, LLC? He could have. Or did Paul introduce himself this way? I, Paul, entrepreneur and philanthropist. Now, I think Paul introduced himself in this way. I, Paul, a servant of Christ. Look, 200 years ago, uh, the author, the novelist Charles Kingsley, wrote this. He says, we act as though comfort and luxury were the chief requirements of life. When all that we really need to make us happy is something to be enthusiastic about now let's just pause for a second and ask a question what is it that Christians get enthusiastic about what is it that we really get jazzed about as Christians well in verse 24 Paul tells us what he got enthusiastic about Paul says this he says but I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only that I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Living every bit of our lives to testify to the gospel of the grace of God is what we get enthusiastic about. 
That's what we live as Christians our entire lives for, from our marriages, to our child-rearing, to our singleness, to our friendships, to our careers, to our dreams, to our desires, to our aspirations, to our free time. All lived with this main ambition in mind to bring glory to God. Not some sort of vain pursuit of trying to find our purpose, but knowing our purpose. Now that leads me to another question though, because we can always say, oh, well, let's bring glory to God. And I hear Christians say that and amen to that. Glorify God with your life. But what does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? Like, uh, uh, I'm just living for the glory of God. Cool. But what does that actually mean like in the way that you think about how to use your life, in the way that you think about your stewardship of everything that you have? Well, one of the primary ways that we glorify God with our lives, if not the primary way, is to testify to the grace of God. So Paul was all about living his life to God's glory, and as he explains to you what he does to live his life to the glory of God, it was to testify to the grace of God. A guy who was very successful, worked a busy job, made a lot of money. His purpose was to testify to the grace of God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the glory of God and as our only means of glorifying Him, the salvation of souls is the real business of life. Did you get what he said there? First, what he's saying is, is that Christians live for the glory of God. And secondly, secondly what he's saying is, is the primary way that we display that, the primary way that we, 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 we live for the glory of God is for the salvation of human souls. Or as Paul puts it here in verse 24, to testify to the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is on now his third missionary journey. We are in Acts 20. We're nearing the, the, the last uh, third of the book, and Paul is on his third missionary journey. He ends up in Miletus, and even though Miletus is quite a bit south of Ephesus, when Paul gets to Miletus, he sends for the elders of, uh, of Ephesus to come and meet with him, to have a private meeting with him on Miletus. Now, you might remember from our previous sermons that Paul has spent quite a while in Ephesus, at least two and a half years in the last visit, and sometime before that, three, four years perhaps, that Paul has spent loving this church in Ephesus. And so Paul wants to meet with the, uh, the Ephesian leaders one last time. And, and in verses 17, all the way down through verse 38, I only read a verse 24. All the way down to verse 38 is Paul's final speech to the Ephesian elders. And it's filled with emotion and love and concern for them, uh, concern for the glory of God, concern for the gospel, concern for the church. It is, uh, it's a, it's, it's a, a speech that's thick with theology and even ecclesiology, what it means to, to be a church. 
And so for that reason, I'm actually taking his speech and I'm dividing it into two sermons. So today, we're looking at part one through verse 24. Next Sunday, we're going to pick up with verse 25 and finish out the speech. But I wanted to do this because what I wanted to do today is focus on Paul and his understanding of his purpose. Why he's lived his life, his past ministry, and then where he sees himself going And I want to use this as a way to encourage and challenge us to live for the same purpose. To live your life. Not for the purpose of preserving or protecting or promoting your own life. You see, because this life, we we are physical creatures, we are in flesh, because of that we often believe that this life is all we have. And so therefore, our goal is to preserve, protect, and promote ourselves and our own lives. But I want you to see this morning that for Paul, the purpose was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. As he begins his speech to the Ephesian elders, number one, we see intentionality. In his previous ministry, Paul was intentional. Everybody look at verse 18. Paul says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Look, Paul understood intentional living. Paul says, I lived among you. You see, when Paul was in Ephesus, he didn't just show up on Sundays and get ready for Bible study on Wednesdays. But Paul lived his whole life amid and among the people. He took up residence with them. He went on walks uh, with them. He visited them in their homes. He went to save a lot with them. He went to the laundromat with them. They lived their lives together. Paul lived with the Ephesians. Now, uh, just in case we think, oh, well, Paul had so much time on his hands, remember, Paul was also a businessman. He was a busy dude. He was working a full-time gig. Now, that should encourage us because you guys are busy people. You're working full-time jobs. But for some of you, you might say, well, that's not encouraging, that's discouraging. Because I'm too busy and I can't live like Paul lives. I don't know how he did it. Well, let's also remember that Paul uh, most likely didn't have a family. He also worked with some of the Ephesians. Uh, he was working with Priscilla and Aquila on the tent, in the tent industry. He, he, he intentionally integrated his life with them in such a way that that should be not a guilt inducer for us, but rather an inspiration for us to say, hey, that's inspiring for us to try to live our lives together as much as possible. You know, I just wonder what it would look like if we spent more time with each other. Not in a hosting sort of way, but in a living life sort of way. I wonder what it would look, time, what it would look like if, if you said, hey, I'm not going to go to the grocery store by myself anymore. But when I'm going to go grocery shopping, I'm going to call up somebody from the church and see if they want to go with me. We can spend time together. One, one uh, friend of mine, he said that he learned so much about Jesus when his youth pastor would pick him up 
uh, and, and just drive him around. And he said one time he saw uh, his, his youth pastor's uh, tire was flat. And uh, the, he was frustrated. But how he just didn't allow that frustration to turn into anger. And, and just that moment was so instructive for this young man. Now, if that youth pastor just showed up on Wednesday nights for youth group, he would have never had the impact on that kid's life. Does that make sense? Meaning, the impact that Paul had was through his intentionality. Now, sometimes we think of intentional living as for those outside of the church, as only for the lost. And that is true. It is for them. But let's be humble enough to say we need it as well. I need it as well. I need you to be intentional in my life. I can't live alone. We, what, if, what, if, what if Christians need each other for life on life discipleship? To lean into each other, to care for each other. It's not just about our neighbors. It is about them as well. But church is about us. Walking through this life where we see through a glass dimly until that day we see Jesus face to face. Paul was intentional. Number two, Paul was useful. We see his usefulness. So look at verse 19. It says he was serving the Lord with all humility. Humility. As he serves, he serves in a humble sort of way. You know, humility is that we care more about others than how others perceive us. Humility is that we care more about the good of others than the praise of others. Humility is to put others' needs ahead of our own needs. Humility is to be like Jesus, amen? Oh, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God? and took on himself the form of a servant made in the likeness of man. Jesus was found in fashion as a man. He did what? He, come on church, help me out. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Now, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, he says all of that, and then he says this, let this mind be in you. That's the reason for that beautiful uh, poem that he gives us. Let this mind, who was also in Christ, which was also in Christ Jesus, be in you. Where does service to the body come? Where does our ministry come from? It's from humility. So Paul is useful in that he serves the Lord with humility. Our model, church, is not even Paul. Our model is Jesus who was hanging out with his disciples, and he, he stood up. Why? Because his disciples were having an argument about who the greatest in the kingdom of God is going to be. And as they're arguing about who the greatest is, Jesus quietly walks over, and he takes a towel, and he wraps it around his waist. And as they continue to argue, well, I'm going to be on the left, who's going to be on the right, and who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus walks over and he picks up a water basin. And he sets it down in front of his disciples and he proceeds to wash the feet of every single one of them. Oh, and by the way, that was before foot washing was a thing. That was just the lowly action of a servant. 
Oh, let this mind be in you, church. Your service to the church will be birthed out of your humility. And your humility will be birthed out of you following Jesus and becoming conformed to the image of Christ. Number three, Paul also loved the church. As he's talking about his past ministry, he, he lived among them, he was intentional, he was useful, he served them with humility, and he also loved them. Where do I see that? In verse 19 it says, and with tears. I served you in humility and with tears. In verse 31 he repeats that. He says, for three years I did not stop admonishing everyone with tears. I love that. Like I'm, I'm personally challenged by that. Like Paul, when he taught, he cried. I doubt it was uncontrollable. I'm sure he had uh, uh, enough, um, uh, you know, the ability to, to, to get his message out, but, he, but there was tears involved. And that's because he loved the people. He loved them. He did not teach out of pride or arrogance. He did not serve them out of anger or frustration. But Paul served through tears. Fourthly, we see in Paul's previous ministry that he had boldness. He was bold. Look at verse 19 as it continues. He says, With all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house. No matter what, I did not shrink from teaching you anything that was profitable. Meaning, if I have to teach you something that is not popular in this world, uh, and it's going to bring harm to the teacher, Paul says, if it would help you, if it was profit, profitable for your life and walk with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I did not shrink from it. You see, his teaching ministry and his boldness was birthed out of what? His love. His love. What would cause a mother to run into a burning house? The only thing I can think of is that she has a child in there. Don't you understand that love moves you to risk? Love moves you to courage and to boldness. And she's celebrated for saving her child. And everybody says, oh, you are so bold. You're so courageous. And she doesn't feel that way. She just loves her baby. And so because of the love, Paul had boldness. He had courage and he did not shrink. Why? It's because he really believed that this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ was the difference between life and death. And one of the reasons we shrink is because we might not really believe that. But Paul really believed that this was the difference between life and death. In verse 19, he tells us what he was bold about. It's the gospel message. He summarizes it so clearly. He says, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he was bold about. He says both to Jews and Greeks, meaning everybody. Meaning it doesn't matter what background you come from. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you come from. It doesn't matter what class you come from. Everybody is to hear and to receive this message. Both to Jews and Greeks. 
He testified. Of repentance toward God and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a summary of the Gospel message. Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul, repentance and faith were not two different things, you know. Uh, repentance wasn't like a, a work of righteousness and faith was something else. But no, repentance and faith were just two sides of the same coin that led to change. It led to a change of behavior. Repentance and faith, re repentance simply means a change of mind, and faith means to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is his summary of the gospel message. And so, sinner, I want you to know this. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He died so that you could be forgiven of your sins and stand perfectly righteous before God, bathed in His righteousness, accepted as if you are Jesus Himself before God because you're in Him. How do you get in Christ, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus? And I'm pleading with you right now. Please, change your mind. Change your mind about your course. Change your mind about your ability to save yourself. Change your mind about your ability to work for righteousness before God. Change your mind, church. And trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And one day you will be raised to new life, freed from even the presence of sin for all of eternity. That's the Gospel message. And that's what Paul was so passionate about about. He did not shrink even in the face of trials, challenges, and persecution. Now Paul then turns in verse 21 to his future ministry. He says, and now behold, that's his turn. So he, basically he's saying, hey, now check it out. This is what I'm about, about to do. He's going to Jerusalem. This is why he wanted to see the Ephesian elders one last time, because he doesn't think he's ever going to see them again. He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen in Jerusalem when he gets there, but what he does know is this. He says, the Spirit has testified that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await. When Paul gets to Jerusalem, what's going to happen is he's going to meet violent resistance, opposition, He's going to have a, a, a murder attempt on his own life. He's going to end up being locked up. Within 10 years, within a decade, Paul is going to go to Rome. He's going to end up doing two years in prison in Rome. He's going to be released for a short time. He's going to move around and preach the gospel. He's going to get arrested again under the reign of Nero, and his head is going to get chopped off. Paul will never again see the Ephesian elders, and he has this eerie fear, feeling about this last meeting. And this is why he wants to see them and give them this final, uh, this final message face to face at least. You see, church, people have left homes and families to hear the message that you are hearing this morning. Don't you realize that? The gospel message, which we so often take for granted. The gospel message, which we so often, we come into church and we're like, oh, same message, same thing. Yep, need a Savior, need Jesus, forgiveness of sins, life everlasting. Blah, 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 I get it. Don't you realize that people have died? They have died so that somebody 
might hear the message that you freely hear week after week after week after week. It is such an important message that Paul is willing to risk his own life, and he does end up dying within a decade to promote and proclaim this message of the gospel. It's worth it, church. Standing for Christ is worth it no matter what. Paul was bold. You see, by default, I think we tend to believe the exact opposite of what Paul says in verse 24. By default, I think we tend to believe that our life in this world really matters more than anything else. By default, I think we tend to believe that, man, if I, yeah, I get it, you know, I'm going to have heaven one day, but man, it would really be nice to have some of this earth right now. And by default, I think we tend to live like everybody else, a.k.a. living for this world. And so when we get to verse 24, and I've been trying to kind of build up for you to verse 24. When we get to verse 24, what we see is the most countercultural declaration of our day, which framed Paul's entire ministry uh, with the Ephesians. And it's this, he says in verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Now let's pause. Is Paul like, is he saying that his life is worthless? I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Is is Paul saying that his life has zero value? Well, we know that that can't be true because just a, a couple chapters ago, we've seen Paul dip out of town when there was a death threat against his life. He's not suicidal. He actually believes that, that his life has some value and worth. He doesn't want to die. He loves his life. So when we read read that first main idea right there in verse 24, it's a little confusing. But that main idea does not stand alone. So he gives us the main idea, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. And then Paul moves in the second phrase to the explanation of that main idea. And here's the explanation. He says, if only that I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the, to the gospel of the grace of God. So here's what he's saying. He's saying his life has no value apart from the purpose that God has given it. His life has no value insofar as he's able to complete this course. Or it does have value insofar as he's able to to complete this course. Meaning, if I'm able to continue running this race, and if I'm able to finish the course that God's given me, if I'm able to continue to display the glory of God as I testify to the grace of God, then my life has incredible value. His value is defined by the mission that God has given him. But outside of that mission, if you take that away, Paul says, I don't know why I'm living. You see his logic there? In the year 1858, John G. Payton took off on a ship to an island just off of Australia known as the Hebrides. And right before he left, 
for, the, uh, for this, this mission, he was encountered by this man, Nick, Mr. Dixon. Now, you have to understand that the Hebrides were known to be a uh, violent uh, people group. Uh, they were known to be cannibals. They would eat their own after a, uh, a fight, after a battle. And they had eaten uh, other missionaries that had, had gone before John. Um, and so there was a lot of danger involved. There was nobody else there. But he had this heart for the Hebrides. So Mr. Dixon comes along and he, he cries out. He says, the cannibals... You will be eaten by the cannibals. And this was John's answer. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years yourself now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. There, you will be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus... It will really make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in that great day, my resurrection body will arise as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. You see, a mother would run into a fiery house not because of the likelihood of success. She's not doing the statistics and, 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 and asking herself, you know, what are the chances of me surviving this? She's not uh, talking, uh, you know, having a little powwow with the firefighters and saying, hey guys, um, do you think the building's about to fall down? No, the reason she runs in is because of the value of the goal. Does that make sense? Ralph Winter put it this way. He said, the risk is not to be evaluated in terms of the probability of success, but by the value of the goal. Yeah, Paul's main idea is simply this. I don't know if I'm going to survive. Yeah. The probability of success is not what drives me, but it's the value of the goal. And that is to testify to the Lord Jesus Christ. Three lessons for you, and I'm done. Number one, let your ambition be shaped by Christ, church. Let your ambition be shaped by Christ. There was a, a, a sign on a, a storefront, and the sign read, Gone out of business, did not know what our business was. Don't you realize that we lose ambition in life because we burn out. We burn out because we're discouraged. And we get discouraged because we don't know what our business is. We can talk all day we want about finding your destiny, discovering your destiny. But I want to tell you, church, this morning that your destiny has already been determined by God. And we're actually told in the Bible what your destiny is. Have you ever heard the word predestined? The word predestined means that your destiny has been predetermined. Now what does the Bible say you, your, your uh, destiny 
is going to be. Well, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, we are told, check this out, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, a.k.a. that's Jesus. Meaning your destiny is far better than anything you can ever imagine. Your destiny is far better than anything this world can give you. Your destiny is far better than anything that you can get out of this earth. Your destiny is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Your destiny is to look like the Son of God. So let your ambition be shaped by Jesus Christ. Let all of your ambition, no matter what you're doing in uh, all of your awake hours during the day, be shaped by seeking to be conformed to His image. To serve like Jesus. To love like Jesus. To have humility like Jesus. Number two, second lesson. Let your satisfaction, then, be produced by this mission. Let your satisfaction be produced by mission. The actor George Sanders, years ago, he was one of Hollywood's leading men. He lived a very glamorous life. And as he got older, Sanders took his own life. And he left this letter. He said, I committed suicide because I am bored and because I have already lived long enough. Family, don't you understand that fulfillment is not what we seek, but true fulfillment is a byproduct of being enthusiastic about the right thing? And family, hasn't history proven to, to, to us over and over and over again that when you are enthusiastic about the things of this world, it never produces that byproduct of fulfillment. Because that's not the right thing. If your goal is to have this world, then you might have this world, and congratulations. But you will never have satisfaction. And some might say, well, it's not fair. I mean, it was easy for Paul to give up everything because he's had it all. He's tasted it all. You know, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was brought up in a wonderful educational system. He uh, ended up in the Roman military and was a powerful and rich uh, captain in the, in the Roman military. He's experienced everything the world has to offer. That's not fair. Of course he can say, uh, you know, he can lose all of that because he's already tasted it. And then you say, well, I haven't had all of those things, and so I've got to taste that first. I think Paul would say, you fool. You don't need to become a materialist to know that materialism does not bring satisfaction. Let's, let's take it from the, the, the chief materialist in the Bible, Solomon himself, who literally had everything that you can imagine, and he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and basically said, I'm depressed. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and he says, he says this, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth uh, uh, with his income. This is all vanity. Look, when we see somebody like that, somebody who has tasted everything, and they say, hey, there's nothing there, just believe them. There's nothing there. And trust God with your life, church. 
Look, the joy of a Christian who loses their life for the testimony of God's grace and they have joy in the process shames the materialist who lives their whole life seeking material things and ends with nothing. Third and final lesson, and we're done. Let your expiration be marked by completion. Let your expiration, meaning when you die, be marked by completion. Someone once said, let your life goal be to die well. And I think that's right. I think that's Paul's mission here. Paul said that he wants to live in such a way that finishes the course, or some of your translations would read, finishes the race. Church, how do we finish the race that God's given us? Number one, know your purpose of the race, and that is to testify to the grace of God. Number two, know the cost. It's this world and the things therein. But number three, I want you to know the strength and that is the grace of God. We don't find this flame within us. This flame is given to us. Paul didn't intrinsically have it in himself to live this kind of life abandoned for the glory of God. But Paul knew that the fire of the Holy Spirit had rested on him, had been given to him, and it was God's grace then that was leading him through it all. The Greeks, Paul was a big fan of racing, by the way. The Greeks, in Paul's day, they had a race uh, in their Olympics, which was different, a little different than our races today. For the Greeks in their Olympics, the one who won the race was not the one who finished first, but the one who finished with his torch still lit. Don't you know, church, that we finish the race with our torches still lit? Don't you know, church, that the Holy Spirit has given you a flame that will not die out? You have been given a fire that is not going to go away. And that is because we will finish our course. We will finish our race by grace. Are you with me? Like, He don't just save us and then say, okay, now you've got to figure out how you're going to finish it. No, by grace you've been saved. By grace you were changed. By grace you were called. By grace you were shaped. By grace you move. By grace you speak. By grace you live. And by grace you will finish the course that God has given you. Amen? Amen. Since Christ ran His race, we can run our race on an old rugged cross, Jesus hung there and died. Oh, Jesus, Jesus went to His own death out of humble love and service for you. Jesus ran His, way, his race in such a way that led Him to the, the losing of His life. But not even death was a discouragement for Jesus finishing His race. But the story doesn't end there, does it? Three days later. Come on, somebody. Three days later. 
the stone was rolled away. Meaning the imprisonment and the afflictions of death couldn't keep Jesus down. But the story doesn't even stop there. He then came to you individually. The Bible says that God knows how many hairs you have on your head. This is very intimate and very personal that Christ came to you and then transformed you. You know, the Christian, when we encounter this message, our song is at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. I wonder if there is anybody here who knows that Jesus finished His race. And because Jesus finished His race, church, we can finish ours. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future, my life is worth the living. Just because He lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, give us lives that are worth living. Help us, God, to not be distracted from our course, and that is to look like Jesus, to serve and to love with humility like Jesus. Help us, Father, we pray. God, we go in the grace of Your Spirit. We recognize that You've given us everything that we need. Keep us. Shape us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.